So in 1809, a church originally called the Free African Church of St. Philip, later St. Philip's Episcopalian Church, was founded. This was an all-black Episcopal congregation in New York City. They did all the things that good Episcopalians are supposed to do doctrinally and ecclesiastically and theologically. But in 1846, at the annual diocesan meeting, their, their, their national gathering where they conduct church business, the white Episcopalian leaders refused to seat a black delegation, refused to seat a black congregation. They did so because of racism. They questioned these white leaders whether black Christians had anything constructive to offer in a setting with such esteemed clergy people. The idea was that black people could receive from white Christians, in this case Episcopalians, but could not contribute anything, could not participate in the arcane and complicated uh, uh, church business that they had to conduct. So that's one thing, right? Here are Christians who check every single box that you do as Episcopalian, you know, in this time. And the only difference was their skin color. What really stuck out to me, though, was the way the white Episcopalians justified the exclusion. You know, if we think about today, there's, there's a, a pattern in the news and online where no one, it seems, is racist. There's a popular phrase now, I don't have a racist bone in my body. This comes just after they've done something blatantly racist, right? Well, that's not a new pattern. That's not a 21st century social media kind of thing. Listen to what white Episcopalians said in 1846. They said, we object not to the color of their skin, but we question their possession of those qualities which would render their intercourse with members of a church convention useful. We object not to the color of their skin. We just don't think they're smart enough to keep up with us. And isn't it conspicuous that they only said this about people of African descent? And yet, this is the 19th century equivalent of, we don't have a racist bone in our body. We just don't think they can keep up. So as we talk about this idea of Christian complicity with racism, number one, it's an old problem. And number two, Christians are, are, are all up in it when it comes to the bloodiest war the nation has ever been involved in, which, as I said last week, as you probably already know, was over the issue of race-based chattel slavery. So as we look at US history, we cannot separate what Christians particularly white Christians, did and did not do in the conflagration over slavery. So, if you were there last week, we had a fun time, a lively Q&A, we sold books, we shook hands, it was great. And I'm glad you're back. 
And just to recap, we've talked a little bit about the chattel principle. You'll hear me often say race-based chattel slavery. Chattel means property. One of the fundamental things we got to understand about American slavery is that it turned people into property. And that comes into play in terms of how Christians thought about black people. Another thing we thought about is that race is a social construct. It doesn't mean race is an illusion. It means race has no biological or theological basis in terms of the dignity of each individual human being. We're all made in the image of God. Therefore, to stratify us according to skin color is not of God. What happened was over time, and we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, over time, race as categories became constructed in the United States, largely based off of this chattel principle because it meant you could make money by enslaving people considered black, and you could get wages, social and economic, for being considered white. And lastly, last week, we talked specifically about what historians call contingency. The idea that things could have gone another way. I think that's critical for us to remember in 2019 because now on the 400 year anniversary of Europeans bringing people of African descent to the coast of colonial Virginia, it seems almost as if slavery and segregation and racism were inevitable. But they were not. Over time, people, including Christians, made deliberate choices to construct a racial caste system. And it could have, it could have gone another way. The hope in all of this is that if it didn't have to be this way in the past, in some sense, it doesn't have to be this way in the future. So you being here tonight, learning this history, this hard, brutal, ugly history, confronting it, confessing it, repenting of it, you can be part of a new future and a new reality that is more just and more equitable for people of any race or ethnicity. So that's where we've been. Here's where we're going tonight. Two uh, key points. First of all, and this is sobering, throughout US history, Christians have weaponized the Bible to reinforce racism. Throughout US history, Christians have weaponized the Bible to reinforce racism. And secondly, the failure to fully reckon with racism in terms of our history means that racism persists even after monumental changes in law and society. If we don't confront the past in all its brutal unsavoriness, then we can never move beyond it. Now, we're going to skim over a few major historical periods. If you want to learn more, we'll have books for sale later, <laughs> and you can dive in all you want. But even with the book, I always say this is but a doorway that leads to a hallway which has many other doors and halls branching off of it. So I invite you to dive in and become a student of history. We're going to look this night at the antebellum era just briefly. 
talk about the growth of, of slavery and Christianity. We're going to spend a bit more time on the onset of the Civil War and how the Civil War didn't just take place on battlefields like at Gettysburg or Antietam, but it was also a battle over the Bible and biblical interpretation. And then we'll talk about the lost cause and everybody's favorite topic, Confederate monuments and iconography, what that means in terms of history. So see the next slide up here. Just, uh, you can advance all of them up to the uh, Joy and Justice logo. Just some background, uh, if you haven't joined us or it's been a while, uh, my name is Jamar Tisby. I am president of The Witness, a black Christian collective. If you want to continue this conversation, here are some resources. I don't mind you taking out your smartphone and following or tweeting or whatever. Let folks know we're here. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Jamar Tisby. We've got two websites where we tackle this stuff in depth thewitnessbcc.com, along with my own website, jamartisby.com. Uh, it's a little bit more personal, uh, just reflections on life and a lot of history that I've been looking at as well. Um, in addition, we got not one, but two podcasts for your listening pleasure. I invite you to subscribe to Pass the Mic, which I co-host with Tyler Burns, as well as a podcast I just launched earlier this summer called Footnotes. It's my solo podcast, and I tackle current events from a black Christian perspective. So uh, last week, talked about um, this big expose came out about Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, talked a little bit about that. The week before, I talked about uh, Jay-Z signing with uh, the NFL and, you know, what, what kind of move was that? So, so we get into all the spicy things. So I invite you to subscribe there. And then lastly, we have a conference coming up. It's our very first national conference, the Joy and Justice Conference, where we highlight black joy and black justice and continuing the 400-year journey, 1619 to 2019. That's going to be in Chicago, October 4th and 5th. So if you know folks up there, tell them about it and they can make it. If you want to take a road trip, come on. It'll be fun, I promise. And if you can't make it, consider making a, do a donation. Go to joyandjustice.com. Upper right-hand corner, there's a donate button. You can do that online or via check. Maybe you can support, support someone else going. So that's it. Let's get into it. Next slide. Um, told you about the color of compromise. I'll be signing later. So if you want to purchase a book, I'll be signing later. Next slide. So, we talked about the Civil War, but let's think about it in theological terms. Next slide. Um, first, leading up to the Civil War, we have what's called the antebellum period. That goes from roughly the War of 1812 until about the onset of the Civil War. This is a crucial period in American history because from the colonial era on up to uh, the early part of the 19th century, it wasn't clear what the U.S. was going to be economically. There was some tobacco growing, there was some cotton growing, but, but, but it wasn't clear that, that slavery would be this huge economic driving force in the country until about the antebellum period. So some big changes take place in the antebellum period. Number one, by 1815, cotton is the primary crop of the South. Now, 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 don't get it twisted. 
the North is complicit and dependent and interdependent with the South in the cotton industry, because where does that cotton go? It goes to the Northeast for processing. It even goes to Europe in their textile mills. So it doesn't matter that, 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 that the, the agriculture itself is located in the South. The entire country's economic system is wrapped up in the cotton economy. But it doesn't become the primary crop until the early 19th century. But the fact that cotton is grown in the South, as opposed to places like the Northeast, which has a lot more mountains, uh, a different climate where, where cotton can't grow as well, there does develop a distinct culture in the South around enslavement. The fact that you have, for the majority of US history, the majority of black people in the South and Southeast is not a coincidence. That's because of the cotton industry. And having so many black people concentrated in this geographic area develops a culture. We'll talk a bit about paternalism and uh, the patriarchal plantation system in a minute. So also at this time, you gotta remember that America is still expanding. The US is still growing. Where we are now in Arkansas, this was considered frontier land to Europeans. Uh, they had not yet settled. It wasn't until 1803 that we had the Louisiana Purchase and opened up Mississippi, Arkansas, and, and places further west. And then what a lot of people don't realize is that there was another mass movement of enslaved people, and Native Americans, of course, but, but enslaved people were forced to move from plantations along the East Coast further west. And what's so interesting is that uh, in Mississippi, for example, what is now cotton country was not the wide, flat, open expanses that we now see. That land had to be cleared, had to be drained. There were water moccasins, there were diseases, and all that was done by enslaved labor building from the ground up these plantations enriching white plantation owners. Um, in terms of the expansion in 1821, the United States had 24 states. By 1861, the start of the Civil War, it had 34 states. And every new state that entered the Union was a battle over whether it would be slave or free, slave or free. Now in the book, I get into five distinct causes of the Civil War. There are probably more and there are different ways you can break it down, but that territorial expansion was one of the causes and whether a new state would be uh, a slave state or a free state. Now what's critical to note about the antebellum period is that as the United States was expanding in territory, as cotton was expanding as a, as a crop, so too was Christianity expanding. So we talked last week about the first great awakening in the 18th century, there's also the second great awakening, roughly from the early 1800s to about the 1830s, where these big outdoor tent revivals took place. A lot of times, black people would be in the audience with white people, hearing the same preachers and evangelists getting converted under the same messages. And this is when black Christianity really started to bloom, really started to flourish where you had a lot more conversions. There's a lot of reasons behind that, one of which is now you start having native-born people of African descent. 
Uh, in the colonial era, most of the people were coming over from Africa, but now uh, people are starting to have children in the United States, and they're growing up with Christianity as the established religion. Lots more to say about that. But one quote from Alexis de Tocqueville in the 1830s, as he surveyed uh, the American society, he said this, there is no country in the world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men. So de Tocqueville is coming from Europe and he's surveying the US and he's like, this place is really religious. And indeed, compared to a lot of other places, the United States still appears very religious, even if just culturally so. So here's the key point. Growth of slavery and the growth of Christianity happened simultaneously, which means the US's brand of Christianity cannot be separated from compromise and complicity with the institution of slavery. You can't separate what U.S. Christianity has become from the racial caste system and race-based chattel slavery. So, if we're going to talk about racial justice, we have to talk about the church. If we talk about the church, we have to talk about racial justice. They are distinct, but intertwined. What do I mean by U.S. brand of Christianity? Next slide. We'll get to that. I mean pro-slavery Christianity. One interesting point in my research, we think now of um, Sunday as the most segregated hour of the week, right? But it wasn't always like that. Historian Charles F. Irons, in his book, The Origins of Pro-Slavery Christianity, said it this way, Sunday morning only became the most segregated time of the week after the Civil War. Before emancipation, black and white evangelicals typically prayed, sang, and worshiped together. Isn't that interesting? It's likely that before the Civil War, when slavery ruled the day, you had a number of biracial churches. Is that because uh, Christians at that time were more racially enlightened? No. It wasn't out of this kind of noble sense of racial equality that you had biracial churches, particularly in the South, it was about control. You see, if you had a bunch of black people getting together, even if they were Christians, then they might talk about these, um, these wacky ideas about equality and liberty. And they might start talking about freedom and how they don't wanna be enslaved anymore. So white folks couldn't let that happen so instead of letting black people congregate on their own, they said, come to our churches. But guess what? You need to sit in the balcony or the back or in that section. You feel a call to ministry? Sorry, we don't ordain you in this denomination. If we do let you preach and teach, it's only gonna be to your kind. You couldn't possibly hold ministerial authority over white people. You get it? That's what a biracial church looked like prior to the Civil War. And it speaks to this idea of a paternalistic Christianity. So many historians talk about the plantation as an extended family. This is how a plantation owner would have thought of it. 
A plantation owner would have thought of himself as the patriarch over this huge extended family. First was his actual biological family that stayed with him in the home. He was over his wife. He was over his children. But then he had this extended family, which included enslaved people. But whereas in your own families, if your apparent children grow up and become adults and independent, there was no such thinking about enslaved people. Enslaved people were considered in a patriarchal plantation system perpetual children, which meant they were never ready for auto autonomy. They were never ready for independence. It meant that, 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 that the, the patriarch had to take care of enslaved people like he would take care of children and provide for them. Of course, they never got, you know, the same things or the highest quality things as his actual children, but it gave him food and clothes and for this was considered generous. But again, enslaved people were considered perpetual children, which meant they always needed to be controlled. They needed to be punished when they acted up or were disobedient. And they could never be free of the paternalistic control of the plantation owner or white people. Plantation as an extended family, the owner as a patriarch. So evangelism grew alongside of this uh, uh, paternalistic slaveholder Christianity. Evangelical Christianity grew throughout the Great Awakening and it, and it compromised with the slaveholding status quo. These contradictions eventually led to schisms and splits along sectional lines in major denominations. Next, well, we'll stay here. So now we get to the Civil War. Most often when we think about the Civil War, we think about the fighting. We think about the battles. We think about guns and cannons and armies. But there was an ideological war taking place too. What happened was that people in the South who were pro-slavery saw themselves as pro-Bible. And they looked at these Northerners as theological liberals who were doing funny things with the Bible, and that's what led them to unbiblical, anti-Christian stances like abolition. It may sound strange to us now that Christians thought the other Christians who were advocating for equality and freedom were wrong on the Bible. But this is the ideological, theological battle that was taking place, and to reinforce it, people in the South constructed a theology around their racism, and they blessed their bigotry with the Bible. So, before I get into some examples, two facts about the Civil War. Number one, that the Civil War was fought over slavery. And number two, that countless devout Christians fought and died to preserve slavery as an institution. Moreover, they thought they were doing God's will. Should give us some humility as we think about the Bible and our interpretations of it. So, how do I know that the Civil War was about slavery? South Carolina was the first state to secede from the Union 
in its Articles of Secession. It put it this way, those non-slaveholding states have assumed the right of deciding upon the propriety of our domestic institutions, that institution being slavery, and have denied the rights of property, that property being people in enslaved black people. Established in 15 of the states and recognized by the Constitution. So what South Carolina is saying that, that, that these northern states who have allied with the Union, they are imposing from a federal level laws on the states which are supposed to be sovereign and able to decide for themselves about the institution of slavery. Moreover, it was a question of property rights, which is baffling because you're talking about human beings. So that's what the southern states were arguing. Mississippi Articles of Secession, I cited them last week, but it said our position, Mississippi is the second state to secede, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. This is why I keep coming back to the chattel principle. You gotta understand that they're considering people property and property is money. So, so, so when you talk about abolishing slavery, you're talking about, quote unquote, ruining the economy. You're talking about taking away people's private property. That's what they were so amped up about. It wasn't just ideological, it was also material. Hmm. This part got me too in the Mississippi Articles of Secession. They said, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. Because we don't get sunburned as easily, we're meant to pick cotton, basically. And number two, prior to the Civil War, the split between North and South was actually foreshadowed by the splits in Christian denominations. I don't have time to go into all of the details, but Methodists split over whether the, their bishops could also be slaveholders. Think about this, the bishops, the highest leaders in the denomination, can they be slaveholders was the question. Ultimately, Northern Methodists split from their Southern Methodist counterparts. What's interesting is that John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, found slavery appalling. He said it cannot be that either war or contract can give any man such a property in another man as he has in sheep and oxen. Much less is it possible that any child of man should ever be born a slave. This is from the, the founder of Methodism. And yet you had an entire section of the country who was Methodist arguing that no, 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 bishops can be slaveholders. Last week I, I, I talked about the 1845 split over uh, with Baptists. That's how we get what is currently the largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. That Southern part comes from this schism, which happened more than 15 years before the Civil War, over the issue of whether a missionary could enslave another person. A missionary going over to Africa to talk to Africans about the gospel, meanwhile in the United States enslaving people of African descent. This is the illogic of racism. And then of course, Presbyterians also split. For them, it was a separation of church and state issue. The Northern Presbyterians basically came up with a clause that said, you as a Presbyterian support the union. 
which was code for you support abolition. Southern Presbyterians said, no, 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 no. There's this separation between Christ and Caesar. You can't make us bow the knee to Caesar and therefore support abolition. We're going to split and form our own denomination, which became the Southern Presbyterians, first known as the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America. Next slide. So those are denominational slits, but they also weaponized the Bible to baptize their bigotry. What happened was this. People in the South were arguing for a plain reading of Scripture. They were arguing that we read Scripture as God intended it. We read scripture straightforwardly. Northerners and abolitionists have to do all kinds of twists and turns with the Bible to get the Bible to support their abolitionist cause. But what advocates of slavery didn't realize is when you see the word slavery in the Bible, it's a very different context. First of all, the Bible is written millennia ago. Much of the Old Testament is written in the ancient Near East context where, yes, a form of slavery was prevalent and was regulated. But here are some of the differences. In the ancient Near East context, slavery was not race-based. It wasn't only for one group of people. It typically was not for life, that you could never get out of slavery. You weren't born into slavery necessarily. A lot of times enslaved people come from war and battles. Enslaved people were permitted to marry. They could own property. In contrast, American race, now slavery is not the preferred way, of course. I'm just highlighting some of the differences. Um, but in the American context, race-based chattel slavery was based on race. So only people considered black or African or colored could technically be enslaved. And it was based on the status of the mother, not the father, which was traditional because that meant a plantation owner could rape a black woman and the child would become his property. If it was based on the father, then he'd have to take care of all those children as if they were his biological family, which indeed they were. It was for life. No hope of freedom. You were born into it. You could not marry legally. You could not own property. You did not have any civil rights as cemented in the Dred Scott case of 1857. So these are some of the differences. But when Southern pro-slavery Christians read the Bible, they saw slavery, slavery, one-to-one. -one. Not to mention all the passages about loving your neighbor, treating other people the way you want to be treated, et cetera, et cetera. It's a battle over the Bible. One last thing, you may have heard of the curse of Ham. This is a very cryptic story in the Bible, Pastor Preston. I'd love to hear your sermon series on this passage. I'm not quite sure how to make sense of it myself, but in this passage in, in Genesis, uh, Noah gets drunk. Somehow he ends up naked and passed out in his tent. One of his sons, Ham, goes into the tent and the Bible says, sees his father's nakedness. And this is considered a sign of disrespect and, and, and shame. And he goes out and he tells his brothers, Shem and Japheth, but instead of going in and gawking like, like Ham did, they, 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 they put a blanket between them and they walk backwards into the tent and they cover their father. 
Then when Noah wakes up, he said, he said, cursed is Canaan, but they call it the curses of Ham, but they said, cursed is Canaan, Canaan a, a, a servant to his brothers he shall be. And then white pro-slavery Christians took this passage and said, oh, well, the descendants of Ham are Africans. So the Bible says they shall serve their brothers, Shem and Japheth, which are Jewish and, and European people. Is, is, none of this actually makes sense geo, genealogically, right? Like, it, you can't trace anyone directly back to one of these three brothers, let alone a whole racial group, okay? But they made this up to justify their racism. They're baptizing their bigotry with the Bible. And because of the curse of Ham, they said, oh, no, 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 no. It is ordained by God that black people should be enslaved. So that means if you talk about abolition, you're actually talking about my theological beliefs, about my understanding and interpretation of the Bible itself. This was a battle over the Bible. Which makes it a lot harder to change people's minds, right? So I'm gonna pause there. If you were with me last week, I told you, I was a sixth grade teacher. You can't just lecture and go on and on and on. You gotta have some processing time. So what I want you to do is you turn to somebody near you, somebody you know, somebody you don't know. Um, talk about a question you have, a fact that stuck out to you, a, a, a reflection. Just take a minute to, to absorb what we've talked about and, and process it with someone else. We'll take about 90 seconds.
Okay, make your final comments. And we can advance to the next slide. And I'll tell you right now, I might go <laughs> uh, past my time. So if you gotta leave right at seven, don't feel guilty about uh, getting up and, and leaving um, um, on time, because I'm over time. I mean, we'll look at you and stare at you and you won't get a book, but you know, do what you gotta do. Um, so we talked about the antebellum era, uh, growth of cotton, growth of Christianity. We talked a little bit about the theological battles of the Civil War and how this was not only fought on physical battlefields, but, but, but the ideological and theological battlefield of the Bible. Now I want to move quickly through the era of Reconstruction and Redemption. So, right after the Civil War, which it still gets me, between, between 650,000 and 800,000 Americans died in the Civil War, most by disease, but also in many, many bloody battles that claimed the lives of tens of thousands of people at a time. It took all that to abolish slavery, which tells you something about how deeply embedded this institution was in the United States, am I right? Like we had to kill people to abolish slavery, but it happens. And from about 1865 to 1877 is what historians call the Reconstruction Era, reconstructing the South physically. This was the site of most of the battles, so towns are decimated, buildings destroyed, et cetera, et cetera, but also reconstructing the Union, reconstructing the united part of the states. And it was during this period that you had this flowering of black advancement culturally, intellectually, religiously, just, just a little bit about that period. In March 1865, the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, otherwise known as the Freedmen's Bureau, was established. It was a federal uh, uh, institution uh, based in the South that provided food and clothing for recently freed people. It helped people locate family members who had been separated from one another uh, during enslavement. It helped people find employment. They even helped start schools uh, such as Clark Atlanta and, and Howard University were the results of the efforts of the Freedmen's Bureau. The political life of black people flourished at this time. Hiram Revels became the first black U.S. senator. Uh, for a very brief time, PBS Pinchback became the first black governor in, in, in the whole United States that was in Louisiana. At one time, 14 black men served in the U.S. House of Representatives, and 800 black men served in state legislators. legislatures. They even had a majority in the South Carolina State House. It was majority black in the House of Reps at that time. Also during this time, in January of 1865, Union General William T. Sherman gives Special Field Order Number 15. What that did was reserve a tract of land 30 miles wide and 245 miles long. It ex on, along the East Coast, it extended from Charleston, South Carolina, down to Jacksonville, Florida. He promised a mule to each family so that they could work their plot of land, and this field order became colloquially known as 40 acres and a mule. But Lincoln was assassinated shortly after the Civil War ended. His successor, Andrew Johnson, I could talk about him. He was a racist, and he ordered that the lands be returned to former slaveholders. 
So right after this bloody civil war to abolish slavery, the land, which had been promised to black people to help them get a start and become full and equal citizens, was ripped away from them and given right back to plantation owners. Hmm. Reconstruction ends in about 1877 with a compromise to give uh, uh, President Hayes the presidency in exchange for withdrawing federal troops from the South, effectively ending the Freedmen's Bureau and Reconstruction. And then comes a period called redemption. Next slide. This is a photo of the Seymour Blair presidential ticket. They ran against Ulysses Grant. And they ran on a platform explicitly on restoring white rule in the South and across the nation. It says, this is a white man's country. That was their political platform and slogan. In biblical terms, redemption refers to God's plan to save people from their sins, make them into a holy nation. Christ achieved the redemption of his followers through his sacrificial death on the cross. He bought back or redeemed his followers, uh, those who would believe in him, by paying the price with his life. So in many Christian traditions, redemption is a sacred theological principle that undergirds our hope of salvation. But in the hands of white supremacists, a social and political version of redemption justified the racial oppression and violence used to retain white power. White supremacists cast themselves as another kind of savior, the saviors of the South through their supposedly heroic and noble exploits. They would take back or redeem the South from Northern carpetbaggers and Southern black freed people. These redeemers would restore the white man's rule in the South and make the South great again. At least that's how they saw it. So redemption included mainly political disenfranchisement. Uh, they instituted the poll tax, the grandfather clause, understanding tests, and of course, violence. And we'll talk more about the Jim Crow era that, that redemption ushered in, lynching, all of that uh, next week. But let me close this section on redemption with a quote from W.E.B. Du Bois. He said, the slave went free, stood for a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. The result of the period called redemption was the growth of something called the lost cause. Next slide. The lost, the lost cause is a narrative about Southern society and the Confederate cause invented after the Civil War to make meaning of the devastating military defeat for Southern white Americans. The Lost Cause mythologized the white pre-Civil War South as a virtuous, patriotic group of tight-knit Christian communities. According to the Lost Cause narrative, the South wanted nothing more than to be left alone and to preserve its idyllic civilization, but it was attacked by the aggressive, godless North, who swooped in to disrupt a stable society, calling for emancipation and inviting the intrusion of the federal government into small town rural life. But these Confederates, they reluctantly roused themselves to the battlefield, 
not because of bloodlust or a nefarious desire to subjugate black people, but because outsiders had threatened their way of life and because honor demanded a reaction. Even today, the lost cause mythology functions as an alternative history that frequently leads to disputes over monuments, flags, and the memory surrounding the Civil War, the Confederacy, and slavery. Next slide. So the lost cause functions like a religion. Uh, on the previous slide was a statue of Robert E. Lee. He was the patron saint of the lost cause. They pictured him as valiant in battle, this manly Christian who was equally chivalrous and courageous. One preacher, again, Christian complicity, one preacher at the time said, Lee was pure enough to have founded a religion. The leader of the forces that fought to preserve slavery. Confederate monuments were erected through the efforts and money raised by groups such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which speaks to women's involvement in creating the lost cause. There are spikes in the construction of monuments uh, from the 1900s to the 1920s, height of Jim Crow, in the 1950s and the 1960s, the height of the Civil Rights Movement. A historian, Fitzhugh Brundage, says, the installation of the 1,000 plus memorials across the US was the result of the orchestrated efforts of white Southerners to resist political rights for black citizens. This is inscribing white supremacy into the built environment. Behind me, you see the state flag of Arkansas. It has four stars. They represent the nations that have ruled this territory, France, Spain, and the United States. And the last one is what? The Confederacy, the Confederate States of America. The one honoring the Confederacy was added in 1923. In 1924, lawmakers changed the design so that the star was the only one above the state's name. So it wasn't good enough that one of the stars represented the Confederacy. It had to be the star standing alone above the word Arkansas. Now this is in the 20s, 1920s, this is the height of Jim Crow. One newspaper summarized it this way, so there was a law or there was a proposal to change what the stars represented. It wasn't even to change the appearance of the flag, right? Mississippi got to change its whole flag. They were just talking about what the words written on paper that said the star represented the Confederate States of America. Instead, the star would represent the United States of America and a blue star currently representing the US would represent Native American nations. How appropriate. There were people here before Europeans. There were people here before Africans. And they ruled this territory. How appropriate would it be to acknowledge in the documentation on the state flag that this belonged to Native Americans first? Did it pass? Nah. Nah, it didn't pass. <laughs> despite the governor's eventual support. And this was struck down just two years after they finally passed a law that said, you know what, we probably shouldn't honor Robert E. Lee the same day we, we honor MLK. You know MLK Day and Robert E. Lee Day were the same day? They finally struck that law down in 2015 and then they tried to change the wording 
about the representation of a star on the flag, and that did not pass. So this is the lost cause. Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and the Lynching Museum and Memorial in Montgomery, he, he said it this way. The North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. The lost cause narrative. So as we conclude tonight, Slavery wasn't just a battle on battlefields, it was a battle for the Bible. It was a battle for our very interpretation of the word. And even after the Civil War, this monumental struggle to abolish slavery, Christians were still complicit in creating, promoting, and clinging to the lost cause. Thank you.